Hi, good morning. I'm Gaurav Mathur, the founder and CEO of SafeCode, and I'm thrilled to be on this podium podcast. Have you heard the one about the man who walks into a gold bar? No. Don't wait for the punchline to that joke. This is an episode about an investment banker who discovers gold or rather discovers the business opportunity in selling gold. Gaurav Mathur has had a remarkable front row journey in the startup space in India. He was among the earliest institutional private equity investors in India, first as an employee of JP Morgan and then as the founder of India Equity Partners. India Equity Partners eventually got disbanded and that is when Gaurav discovered gold. Gaurav has a fascinating thesis on the past and the future of money and safe gold is his expression of that thesis. In this freewheeling conversation, Gaurav talks about the Wild West days of PE investing in India, his learnings as an investor and the ambitious journey he is currently undertaking at safe gold. Listen on and if you would like to learn about the evolution of startup ecosystem in India, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. So my father used to work in the public sector, he was in the railways, and then he worked in a bunch of other public sector organizations. And I grew up largely between Delhi and Calcutta. And schooling was split between Calcutta and Delhi. Then college was in Delhi University. I went to Hindu college, did my economics. After college, I went to Ahmedabad to do my MBA. And I graduated Ahmedabad in 1998. My campus job was with Deutsche Bank in London. I spent a couple of years there. And there I was on the trading floor. I was trading like the exotic derivatives and very quantitative stuff. And I realized that maybe dealing more with people is more fun for me than dealing with lots of numbers and analysis and things like that. So I joined, then I moved over to JP Morgan on the private equity side. So JP Morgan used to run a fund investing off the balance sheet. And I joined that team. And there the what I really enjoyed was you meet companies, you meet people. Every day your job is to go out and meet companies and you know, assess them and things like that. So there is uh, there is analysis and other stuff that you do, but it's fundamentally about out going out and meeting new companies every day. Uh, this would be investing in unlisted companies, basically. Investing in unlisted companies. And this is not like VC kind of stuff. It's not like very early stage companies, but like slightly. So see the so the thing is, this is two thousand. It was slightly different era that time. And at that time, Asia was also actually it wasn't even J P Morgan. It was Chase Chase Manhattan Bank when I joined it which subsequently merged, I think, in 2001 with JP Morgan. So it was a team called Chase Capital Partners, which in those days, it was very small, right? The sums of money going into un- unlisted companies was small. And if you take Asia as a subset of that, it was like my, it was microscopic. So our team probably used to invest like 100 to $150 million a year across Asia. And that would range from putting $1 million into a startup to doing a buyout of a, of a beer bottle manufacturing company in Sri Lanka and a Domino's Pizza franchise in Japan. So it was all over the place because it was not such a big business then. Now, in hindsight, to think that the same guy can buy Domino's Pizza franchises in Japan as a full buyout where you're running the company and hiring management and also going to Bangalore and putting $1 million into small companies is like a completely different skill set, network, this and that. But that was also fantastic. It gave you huge perspective that you were able to travel all over Asia. And a young guy, it was, I think, one of the most fascinating jobs one could possibly ask for. And I did that for about six years, yeah. And if you ask me, I was happy to. I could have done that for the rest of my life. I liked Singapore. I loved the job. I loved the team. It, it was all perfect. But then, of course, big companies, then JP Morgan merged. And then by that time, the whole unlisted space had started getting more more kind of specialized and things. And you couldn't have this uh, gang of uh, seven, eight people charging all across Asia doing stuff. So they said that we're going to specialize. And it became JP Morgan Partners, which was now globally going to specialize into being a buyout fund, where the aim was to do, you know... Uh, what the US called mid-market buyouts, but in Asia were big, where you put in between 200 and $400 million in a single check and buy out a company typically with some leverage and things like that. So then it started shifting to like mobile phone operators in Hong Kong, chip packaging units in Singapore, tire distributors, traditional businesses and buyouts. And the strategy is that you buy out, you hold for a few years, make it more efficient, make it more profitable and sell it. Correct. Correct. That was the strategy, which was great. But at that time, once you, when you join at a junior level, it's very easy for you to work in any jurisdiction, all of that stuff. As you get a little bit 
senior, you're expected to bring in some of the deals, go originate stuff. Honestly, without speaking the language in Korea or in Japan or Taiwan, it's very difficult to go and bring in transactions, right? You need to go sit with an entrepreneur and venture is different from buyout. Buyout, you're typically your counterparty is much older. And if you're like 29 years old and you try and find some 60-year-old Japanese entrepreneur who's looking to sell his business in English, it's a challenging situation. You're not going to do that well over there. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I live in Japan and I can totally relate to that language barrier challenge. So language and cultural, a lot of little, little things, right? Where am I going to find some aging Japanese entrepreneur wanting to sell his business and he's, I'm the first guy he calls, right? Not going to happen. So naturally, I was doing more stuff in India. And in India, even today, buyouts are not that common, right? How many businesses do you have in those days to find a 200, 300 million dollar buyout where you'll get it was that much tougher, India or Singapore. I figured that now with this new strategy, it's a little less fun for what I was doing. And I teamed up with a bunch of people and we started a fund because that was my first startup when I was like 30 years old. We started a fund called India Equity Partners and we raised $350 million in our first fund and I moved back to Bombay in 2007. That's pretty massive, like raising such a big amount. How did you do that? I mean, even today, $350 million is a pretty massive amount to raise for your first fund. So we were thrilled to bits. It was much more than we thought we'd do. There were a few things going for us. The single biggest thing, which is pure luck, is Chris Capital was raising its fourth fund in 2006. And you didn't have that many India-focused funds at that time. And what is Chris Capital? Sorry, I, I... Oh, sorry. Chris Capital is like the most successful homegrown private equity fund in India. They had a guy called Ashish Dhawan. I don't know if you've heard of Ashish Dhawan, who's now a philanthropist and all that. He's worth a lot of money. He's neighbors with Sunil Mittal. So he, in 1999, started a venture capital fund focused in India. That time, it was called Chrysalis Capital. He renamed it Chris Capital. And he, to date, remains the most successful private equity investor in India. He retired a few years ago, and now his all his acolytes run the fund and all that. So he's like a, I would say, if they're the father of Indian private equity, it's Ashish Dhawan and Chris Capital. And he amazingly retired, handed his firm over to the next generation of partners and ran it. So Chris Capital was raising fund four or fund five. This is a VC fund or a private equity? Like So in those days, we used to be India opportunity funds, but largely private equity. VC was not a material user of capital. So it was largely, you would do early stage growth investments and things like that. Largely, you're looking at cash flow positive businesses. Largely cash flow positive businesses, or even if they may be loss making, they were growing established businesses. They didn't have any, there was no doubt on does the market exist? Are the economics good? Stuff like that. So you looked for growth in a market like India, your returns will come from growth. Unlike in a market like Japan, where you can make returns by just taking out cost and restructuring and you'll get 3% annual growth, stuff like that. India, you would look for where a business could grow 20% a year or 15% a year. So most of your returns would come from growth as opposed to making the business more efficient, which is why you also ended up taking minority stakes. So it was the classic growth equity in private markets. So Chris Capital was like the hottest India fund. And they've even since then, they've generated great returns. So their fourth fund was massively oversubscribed in 2006. So people wanted to put $50 million in his fund. He was taking $5 million. And from his original subscribers, the people who backed him in his first fund in 1999, he said, yeah, you back me in the beginning. I'll take whatever amount you want to put. Everyone else was cut back. So that was one massive stroke of luck. We just went out there with an India strategy, India-focused strategy. And they said, yeah, if you'd back Chris Capital early, you'd have got there. So back these new India fund. So that was one thing. You didn't have that many guys. Today, you have lots of guys raising money, but you didn't have that many guys who had a track record. I'd also been doing India amongst other things. I had exits, I had things. So you had a bit of a track record. And the other, the in all honesty, the single most important factor, apart from Chris, is we had, we had a partner in New York who was a retired Goldman Sachs guy who was supremely well-connected. And if I had to distill it down, when we used to go to a pitch, this guy was a Jewish guy, knew all the big endowments, all the big fund investors. And they would look at him, they knew him, so they trusted that guy. And then they looked at me and my partner, a guy, Akash Mehta. And they said, huh, these guys look like reasonable guys, they have a track record. If we had gone on our own, they just said, yeah, I don't know, these guys look sensible, India seems to make sense, but I'm not sure if they'll take my money, run away, I'm not sure if I trust them. That combination of this guy who knew the people to go into, and they fundamentally trusted him. And then they thought India is good, Chris is oversubscribed, Isma dal dete, and that is what helped us do very well in terms of raising the money. And most of this money was from the US because your partner... 95%, nine, forget the US, I, I'll say 90, 80% was Midtown Manhattan. I can be more specific than that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Our faraway LPs were downtown Manhattan and maybe 5% came from one or two European families or something like that, who, again, who our partner knew. So it was a combination. It was luck and our partner's network that kind of let us do very well. So I moved back to Bombay, uh, feeling like a hero, saying we have a lot of money in 2007. Now, the problem was in 2007, every asset was priced 
at astronomical level that was the peak yeah, so like like at the precipice like just pre 11 brothers and then we realized that along with us this whole india boom there are like 40 others who also got money and shown up it's not like we are the only guys who were doing it so lots of people came raised money i'll tell you two of my biggest my my biggest hit and my biggest anti portfolio miss which i'm which kind of bothers me no end to this date when at the jp morgan one of the deals that i had done in india was we owned approximately 25 30% of the dominos india franchise which is now listed as jubilant food and honestly when we invested in it in 2000 in by 2002 we'd written it off because it was just losing money and the story is now because it's such a big successful company but it gives you an insight into how psychology works right human psychology So in 2002 I was saddled with this thing it was losing money because when the when Domino's first opened in India it did very well and then you opened 30 stores highly profitable we invested they used that money to go open more stores we had a, as JP Morgan we had a minority stake of 25 or 30% I think and the Bharatiya family owned the rest and it did well so with the new money they said acha delhi bombay stores do very well now let's go to slightly tier 2 let's go to like say jaipur let's go to dehradun pune all of that and the first 6 months when they opened in all these places the stores had lines outside they were like spectacularly profitable in fact they were in terms of your investment return they were far better than delhi bombay because your real estate cost was much lower i said see walmart one of the reasons why walmart is successful is because when they went into small towns the market can support one supermarket because the, like a small town in idaho or in whatever in or in indiana if you're the first supermarket there no one else will ever open so you become like a monopoly and it grows as the town grows over 20 years and all it becomes highly profitable because they're all monopolistic towns so in my great mba type theory of saying ki yaar global learning should be transferred and i thought yeah we should also go open all in small towns in delhi bombay bangalore abhi thoda kam kar dete hain aur sare small town mein jaake kholte hain and then we'll be the monopoly aur koi pizza parlor khulega nahi we are great international brand to jaake kar diya jitne paise wo 3 saal ka plan tha wo ek ek saal mein jaake kharch kar diye sab jagah and we felt very happy initially sales look good all of that then sales started dropping and now the delhi bombay bangalore stores are doing damn well they they are consistent so now i'm looking like an idiot again this is more my fault than management but i'm looking like an idiot saying sare paise kharch kar diye debt bhi le liya so in jp morgan's books whatever see every time you put money in as a fund you make a memo and you make projections ki see every projection only goes up like this in one direction right no one says ki things are going to go down so we should put money i am looking like a chump under extreme stress and for the first time i felt the weight of like yaar yeah, when you lose sleep na until then i never lost sleep in a job i was like shit man this is like i had gone inside yoga and i genuinely believed it this is like gone to shit fortunately we had partners like the bharatiyas who were able to put money in manage the debt all of that and at jp morgan also every 6 months they would drip feed money in of our commitment and i had to literally go write these detailed memos back before the committee and no one knew whether it will turn because when you shut a store down it takes one year because you're paying rent and this it's a very messy time very stressful the new stores you don't have money to advertise new stores are not necessarily doing up doing that also in, in bombay if you open more or in bangalore if you open more stores they'll cannibalize each other all of that after 2 3 years of stress the company had just about started growing again and it was stabilized that's when paresh rawal came there was some little bit money to advertise all of that so that was the dominoes story and that was going stable and all then i left and i started started ip so one of the first deals i was sitting in new york and all then i spoke to the jp morgan guys they said yaar we are getting into buyouts and all we want to clean up the old portfolio tumhe ye jp morgan ka tumhe tumne ye dominoes deal ki thi tumhe ye stake khareedna hai so that company which now has a 12000 crore market cap or something we i would at the jp morgan stake was offered to me 30% at a 200 crore valuation or 160 crore valuation so it was 40 or 50 crores ab maine kaha are i know this very well maine bahut spreadsheet banayi analysis ki ye kiya wo kiya maine ka 10 year now the biggest now in hindsight the biggest barrier to me was i had been through 3 years of insane pain with that company where you had lost money i had been groveling before that missed targets missed targets so that clarity that you should what i should have seen was look in these 30 countries pizza has taken off delivery has done well this that all of that which was what i had seen so originally when we wrote the first memo we did all of that but after 3 years of missed targets just human psychology just takes it away sir ye to kabhi nahi hoga and i did some analysis and i offered some price where i said ye ebitda 3 saal whatever crap i did and i said ye to karna hai niche chhod do that company went public 2 years later and jp morgan sold its stake and is done a 30x if i had done that i i mean that would have been like a 50x 80x kind of deal for us today oh, on today's term there would be like 100x and it was like what they say proprietary deal because i had been there i knew the promoters jp morgan is willing to sell it to me it was not like a deal that was shopped around they just said we are cleaning up to me lena le lo that's why i think that to me is the single biggest miss that i did and it and it is just psychological because of my history i couldn't kind of see the potential 
So I think that is one story that that I think about. And when I look back, it's very difficult to be that optimistic when you've been through three years of pain and write-offs and missed targets and stuff like that. That is one. Do you think if you had done that deal, you would still be running India Equity Partners? It's possible. It's possible. Because then the credibility you get with investors, with this, it it would have returned the fund three times over. Continuing from the JP Morgan portfolio, one one deal that we did was a company that's now listed called QuestCorp. So the promoter of, of that company, someone I had backed at backed at JP Morgan. It's a staffing business, right? Like it's a staffing business. That guy had started some Ajit Isaacs. He started a company called People One Consulting. People One Consulting also has an interesting history. One of the deals that JP Morgan did in 2000 was they did a partnership with with the Hindustan Times Group to start something called Go for I. GoForI.com, which was supposed to be like Yahoo, which was in those in 2000, all these horizontal portals were the rage, right? And they had Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Cricket, but whatever, Yahoo Sports, this, that and all. So he said, GoForI will get all the content from Hindustan Times and we'll have a number of sort of sub-verticals. One of the sub-verticals in that was something called Go for Ticketing. The guy who started Go for Ticket, so GoForI had got some seven, eight million dollars and they put half a million dollars into Go for Ticketing. Go for Ticketing, by the way, today is better known as Book My Show. Started by Ashish Imradani, but GoForI was shut down very quickly because in 2001, we said, the horizontal portal, which is, so that was then just spun off as an independent company. And, uh, you know, JP Morgan sort of exited that. Ashish Hemrajani is a great guy. I didn't work on that deal. There were others in my team who worked on it. But the part that I worked on, there was a subsidiary called Go for Careers. Keith Isaacs was brought in to run Go for Careers. Of course, when the parent company shut down, like Book My Show, Go for Tickets became Book My Show. This thing became People One Consulting. And People One Consulting, he sold to Adeco, which is now Adeco India. And once his non-compete finished with the deco, then he said, let me start again. So then I backed him from, from IEP. And that was very successful. We did a roll-up. We controlled that company. We had a majority stake. We put up nearly all of the capital. And we went and bought a whole bunch of other companies, did a roll-up. We sold it to Fairfax, another private equity firm, did very well. And then Fairfax subsequently listed it. And they, they again did spectacularly well. And Ajit continues to run it. Very successful company. I'm on the board of Quest even today old relationship with Ajit. So that's one of the better ones. The other very successful investment we made, which led to where I am today, is in a company called Manapuram Finance. So when IEP invested in Manapuram Finance in 2007 and 8, 2008, I think. Manapuram Finance does gold loans. Yeah, gold loan. That time it was like a 150 crore balance sheet. Today it's a 17, 18,000 crore balance sheet. But it was essentially a small Kerala-based lender of gold loans. And then we were the first outside capital. Then Sequoia came in and then it, of course, grew and went public. They had some arms and they merged together, went public. And it's done very well since then. So that did very well uh, for us. And that was a classic unorganized sector, largely unorganized sector, but an organized sector has a better offering. It has the potential to grow nationally. Lots of people own gold. And we exited that. That did, again, venture style returns. And that was my exposure to the gold sector. I think there the whole... I mean, summarizing the takeaways from that was it was essentially gold is a huge industry. We all know gold is massive. Everyone buys gold, all of that. But honestly, as an urban professional, people like you and me don't really buy a lot of gold. We're not that involved in the day to day of it. Maybe there's a wedding and someone in the family will go to buy it. But it's not a frequent monthly, quarterly kind of thing where we'll go buy gold and put it in a cupboard. But when you look, when you're involved in a company like Manapuram, and that was like, in the US also, we had all US investors. They said, this is a pawn shop. What is this? Pawn shops are a shady business, all of that. So you had to do a lot more due diligence. So the bar for putting money in that was much higher. And remember back in the day when we invested, even banks didn't give loan to Manapuram or these gold loan companies because even in India, it was viewed as a high risk, slightly shady business, all of that stuff. So the bar for putting money in was very high. So we had to go spend a lot of time at the branches, meet lots of customers, do a lot more due diligence. But then it opened your eyes to the fact that once you take off your this urban professional blinkers and you look at what the true Bharat is or whatever else. Gold is like a major part of the savings. If they get spare money, they'll go buy gold. If they need a loan, they'll either sell it or use that as collateral, all of that stuff. And then seeing the way Manapuram and even Muthut and these other specialist guys grew, it was that once the organized sector figured out like a compelling offering compared to the unorganized loan, jeweler loans and things like that, they were able to grow very rapidly. And I think that's what when I was finally looking to start a business, I said, if you could organize the gold business in India, that's the loan side, but you can organize the investment part of it. Then there's potentially you can build a very big business on that. And that's what kind of, that was the experience that led to my current. Fascinating. Let's talk about the safe code journeys. I think one of the things that I started doing was I used to, I've never learned computer programming, but I used to code a bit hobby and I started learning, getting back in touch with doing some courses, learning how to code a little bit and all that. And I got fascinated with this whole cryptocurrency thing. So this is in 2016 when Bitcoin was also, Bitcoin started in 2009, but I started dabbling in Bitcoin, buying it. And the concept fascinated me. Concept of Bitcoin is everyone gets a unique address. And 
anywhere in the world you can have that unique address you can transfer value from one address to the other address it, it doesn't matter where you have a bank account you can open a wallet and you can transfer it if you look at how banking has come up banks came because you needed cash to go put it right in the banking started as far as you know in europe in the 14th 15th century people had gold or they had currency or whatever they would go put it at a physical place to safe keep it and then they would take it out and then you would get a loan and all that so that whole concept of a branch ki jaake physically tum apna paisa deposit karo fir tumhe wahan se paisa milega and all that started off with the need to physically keep money somewhere and then all these payment systems and all that stuff came about but again if you look at it from an economic concept point of view for me what blows my brain still today and i think there's a more efficient way the whole financial system banks have built up based on that 14th century medici italian families started it pioneered it and all it's been built up from there but today you don't need a branches are we all know okay some people need them for customer service it's not really needed but if you think about it now with some central bank digital currency kar do gold bag digital token kar do bitcoin kar do let but you can have a digital representation of your value whatever the format is right you can keep it in your wallet so if you want to keep it safe you can keep it in your in your hard drive you can keep it in a centrally stored wallet the whole banking thing which has maybe 100 200 300 billion dollars of cost which are incurred because you have to protect people because they've lent their money to the bank that shouldn't be the case you should be able to store your money because if you want to store your money you have to lend it that is the fundamental dichotomy in today's thing to store money you have to lend it you should be you can today store money 100% safely without lending it to an institution that is dichotomy number 1 to with everyone who stores money can have one global address and if you want to transfer it from point a to point b this massive infrastructure that exists in the world today is honestly a waste it's all middleman wo visa mastercard npci ye wo nahi chahiye zarurat nahi hai iski but because this thing exists so these two things will at some point my views go away this so i first if you look at safe gold's website it is this we started out saying will be a gold back cryptocurrency maine 2016 mein apna baith ke ek website banayi ki main gold back wala and i thought it will be mannapuram plus bitcoin merged into one and i will conquer the world in 6 months i was disabused of the notion ki yaar ye india mein regulation to crypto ko to maar denge to maine kaha che crypto wala bit to hata do ye india mein crypto is, is is like not a good word but this concept it just got me excited enough to say yaar isme ghus jao let's start a business ye 3 4 saal retirement mein i have tried dabbling here that this thing seems fascinating and there are it's a long journey let's try and figure out what we can do and that was the genesis of me getting out of retirement and dabbling in this and that and starting a full time so you actually set up a blockchain in version 1 like i want to understand the evolution of the product blockchain exists just not used in india like we have an operation in thailand today we have a subsidiary there we use the original blockchain that we started and also here and have applied for license from other countries where we're applying for a crypto token so my original let's say I'd put it at fantasy level. We will do a gold-backed digital currency. It will then be give you a store of value, yield, all of that. Build an alternate currency for the financial system. That remains. You know, whether it's a ten-year gold, twenty-year gold, or you know, honestly, I can't say. And I'd put it in the realm of fantasy. But it's still everything that we try and do is building blocks to one day it will be used in that system. So if you look at our system in India, what is safe gold today? What we saw was that there is demand for gold as an investment. This is just a simple website we started, and this was still in my dabbling days. 2016, this wasn't a business. The business really started in 2018. So there's still enough people wanting to invest because a token can be subdivided. So the value proposition that we figured out was that one gram of gold is about five thousand rupees. अब आपने tokenized कर दिया तो आप दस रुपए का भी बेच दो. You know, Bitcoin also can be divided infinitely. You know, this is like a good thing. So we were seeing some evidence of that demand when we were talking to customers, things like that. So we said, okay, let's just build it. There's a there's a big value to be built as a investment option, and then you can monetize that investment. You can lend it out. You can do a whole bunch of things with it. So in India, let's build a user base. Let's organize gold. There's there's a big market there. At some future date, when regulations around crypto are clear, you can always take your entire user base and make it a gold based gold back token and all. It's not like you're shutting that door. But today, you want to run in a compliant manner so the government doesn't shut you down. and let's run it as a gold based investment product how we run digital gold today is when you buy digital gold whether you buy it on safe gold we've got like 100 partners from amazon flipkart phone pay all of those guys wherever you buy safe gold from the money goes to the trustee trustee will then check with the custodian ki is there actual gold backing this purchase if there is gold backing this purchase then they give us the money otherwise they'll sit on the money until we buy it like they could get the money on friday night and we'll say yaar abhi market se shut i can't buy gold he'll say theek hai money is with me So we've set it up such that it's not possible that you can buy safe gold from us without physical gold backing your thing, or or if there isn't for whatever reason for some temporary market shut, weekend, long holiday, whatever, then we don't get money sets in the collection account. Also, if you one of the other reasons we chose gold is that 
until 1972, all currencies in the world, fiat currencies were also backed by gold. They had the gold standard. So there is a natural, let's say, history where, where people think that gold can be used as a currency. It's also the most traded asset. It was the most widely traded asset after the US dollar. You can go to... You can go to Kabul, you can go to Harare, you can go to New York, the least developed to the most developed city in the world. There will be a market for US dollars and there will be a market for gold. So unlike Bitcoin, there'll be no debate that what is it worth, this, that people will know it's worth gold. Now you could say there'll be some plus minus 1-2% on the digital format versus physical, all of that will be there. But largely there is a anchor value for gold, then there's taxation and all of that. But gold is an anchor value. So you want to build this global address. So gold prices are relatively stable across the world. There's no arbitrage opportunity. Say gold is cheaper in Pakistan than India, for example. Does would that happen or it's relatively stable? So yes and no. The reason there's no clear answer is the world is split between free trade and restricted trade. I don't know Pakistan, but India, like you can't export gold. You can import it. If you import it, they're very strict regulations. Only a few people can import it. They have to pay customs duty, this, that. If say gold in India is more expensive, adjusted for taxes than gold in Dubai. I'm just taking that. Then there'll be lots of imports coming in. Everyone from Dubai will send their gold to India. So Indian gold will never be much more expensive because the whole world will send it in here through banks, whatever, and then arbitrage goes away. But if Indian gold is much cheaper, then you can't buy gold in India and take it out. So in the free trade world, it will be very tightly priced. There will be on occasion, like when COVID happened, then you couldn't deliver. There was no transport. So suddenly gold in New York zoomed up because London said, no, there were no planes to transport it. So So in free events, there will be arbitrage. But in the free trade world, you will generally have a very tight price. If you look at gold, its volatility is like a currency. It's close to the, it's a very low volatility. It'll be half the volatility of, say, the equity market. And if you look at long-term returns, if you look at 20, 50, 100-year returns, in the US dollar, it gives you 3 or 4% annual returns. Because it, it essentially gives you inflation plus half percent or something. So, you, so you, short term, it'll go up or down. You can't predict. In the next one year, you could lose money in gold. Next 18 months, you could lose money in gold. But if you hold it for five years, 10 years, is good. And Indian rupees over 10 years, 15 years, so it, it gives you 9%, 8%, 12%, depending on which period you look at. So it's almost comparable to equities. Yeah, like Indian rupee, again, is an inflation factor or Indian rupee gives higher return? So it, it is that 3%, 4% US dollar. Plus, the Indian rupee depreciates 4%, 5%, depending on which time period you look at it. So, you take US return plus inflation, you have 8, 9, 10%. And that's the, again, we have to give it 2, 3 years. In the short term, you'll have fluctuations. You can't. So it's a good, stable asset. It, it's got whatever 5,000 years of history, is used as a currency. So, we thought it's as good a, a base to build a digital currency based on. But that digital currency is for the next five years will only be, uh, be outside India. India is fortunately a huge market for gold in any case. So there's a whole bunch of stuff you can build in India in any case behind gold. Okay. So I want to go into the nuts and bolts. Let's start with these terms you used, a custodian, a trustee, a vault. Help me understand what are each of these. Because for the India offering, these are the core parts of the offering, right? In India, we offer a more efficient way for anyone to invest in gold and then to do a bunch of things with that gold. So let's talk about the basics. The custodian is the institution that operates the vault. So all the physical gold that is purchased by customers. So you actually buy physical gold and there is an actual vault in which it is stored. It's one of those James Bond style vaults with five layers of security and even I can't visit it. You have to get your fingerprints done before you go in and all of that stuff. And this is with a bank? Like who's the custodian here? So there's a firm called Brinks, which is the largest safekeeper for, for precious metal across the world. So whether you're a JP Morgan Chase bank in New York or your HDFC bank over here or you're the MCX or your Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is the biggest gold futures platform in the world, all their physical gold is stored with Brinks for the most part. They have a few other operators, but Brinks is the largest. It's a listed US company. They operate the largest network of precious metal vaults across the world. So they are our custodian as well. So they physically store the gold. Now, safe gold, we call it digital gold, but it is actually... It's a misnomer in the sense safe gold is a platform where people buy real physical gold. The only difference is it is stored in a vault. You are not buying it and taking possession of it right away. It is stored in a vault. And because it is stored in a vault, we can subdivide it. That We can say there's a one kilogram bar and it is owned by 1,000 people. Someone may own 40 grams, someone may own 0.2 grams. But if we have sold, say, six tons of gold to customers, there will be six tons of gold in the vault. So it's not possible that we've sold gold to the customer and there isn't gold backing it in the vault. So safe gold is buying physical gold. It's just that you're buying it over digital channels. So it's a bit of a misnomer that people think it is. It is not physical. It is you are buying physical gold. Whatever you buy from us is actual physical. It sits in a vault with insurance, with high security, all of that stuff. 
and you can get it or sell it whenever you want. And this, the value of your investment is always whatever is the current price of gold. It is there is like a direct linkage. If you buy 0 0.05 gram, then so let's put it this way: you own gold, you own physical gold. The only difference is you you don't have it in your cupboard. That is all. So that is what we tell people to think about. You own physical gold and legally you are the owner of that gold. I don't have it. I Not that I expect it to happen, but theoretically, if we were to disappear, go bankrupt, whatever else, right? There is a trustee who's got all the customer data and stuff, I mean, encrypted and all with all the data protection guidelines. But the trustee will then step in and distribute those assets. We as a company don't have any claim on that gold. Our creditors don't have any claim on that gold. It is customer gold, not our gold. We are like a manager, facilitator for helping customers access their gold. So... It is stored with a custodian who operates the vault. The trustee is an independent sort of agency whose job, or it's a company, it's a company called Vistra Corporate Services. They're a Singapore headquartered company. They operate these trustee services in many countries, UK, Singapore, this, that. This trustee service for digital gold is not regulated in India. We hope it. We hope that it does get regulated, or for digital assets or whatever. There's no regulation on it. The government's talking about it. At some point, hopefully, it'll get regulated. But globally, people regulate digital asset trustees and things like that. This is a subsidiary of one of those companies. What is a trustee? Trustee. That's why in India, it's an independent company whose job is to protect the customer's interest. Now they do it. It's a, it's a specifically defined thing. I'll simplify it without going into all the details of the contract. But they have two specific roles. First is when we sell gold to a customer, the money comes to an account controlled by the trustee. Their job is to make sure that we get that money only when they have verified that there is adequate gold backing this purchase in the vault. So it's a daily release. They get all our sales into an account controlled by the trustee. They will then check here, is there gold backing this purchase? If there is, they will give us the money. If there is not, they will sit on the money. And if beyond whatever, a few days, it's never happened. We've done whatever, 70, 80 million transactions. But if after a few days, we haven't put the gold, they'll just send the money back to the customers. So that is job number one. And the trustee does the verification digitally or physically? Like there would be some sort of a linkage with... They do periodic physical visits. But since it's daily money comes to us, I mean, we do, let's say, 200,000 transactions a day. And that money is coming into the account. They can't physically do that verification on a daily basis. But Brinks, which is the custodian, they send a daily report to the trust. So they will look at it yesterday. Okay, this guy had so much gold in the vault. This, today, he's got so much gold in the vault. Does it correspond to the new sales? If it does, then they send us the money. So that is job number one, that we cannot get customer money without corresponding gold being in the vault. Second function that they serve is if something were to happen to us. Or even if a customer just pissed off with us and says, I don't want to deal with safe gold. I don't like them. I don't trust them. I don't like them, whatever else. And then they can go to the trustee. They'll have to prove the KYC, this, that. Trustee has access to a system. They will check that this guy own one gold and if the one gram of gold or whatever the guy owns. And if it all checks out, then they will give that gold to the customer. So if we are, if we don't exist, their job is to distribute customer assets in an orderly manner to the customers. Because everyone's fear is, yeah, you may have bought the gold, this, that, but suppose you go bankrupt. Who will I call? How will I get my gold, this, that? So we built that full process in place and got someone over there who is whose job it is to distribute all those assets and make sure that no one is ever want lacking for their claim. So if you think about it again, practically, and I know regulators will hate this, but when you look at any currency note, it says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of, we'll just give you another piece of paper. RBI has no asset to give you. He can give you like a government of India bond. So as we've seen with Sri Lanka or, or like other countries, if the government goes a little crazy, some very populist guy gets elected, cuts taxes, starts giving lots of freebies, that currency that I promised to pay the bearer the sum of 100 rupees close to worthless, so it'll suddenly lose a lot of value very quickly, right? We are effectively giving you the digital equivalent of that, that I promised to pay the bearer of this digital token, one gram of gold, and we set it up such that it is always backed. Any, anything can happen, you can go to the trustee or you can come to us and there will be that one gram of gold backing it, the way we set it up. And you can take your gram of gold and the gram of gold is such that you can get up from India, you can cross the border, go to Nepal, you can go to Singapore, you can sell it, you'll get something for that gram of gold. So... Say both high risk, I say it's a bit facetious, but JP Morgan had a quotation in 1929 at the height of the crisis where he said, Money is credit, or rather, he said, Gold is money, everything else is credit because gold you can, it's a physical asset, you can go somewhere, you can in cash it, it's a globally traded asset which you can put in your pocket and you can have a lot of value in your pocket and you can go and get it. When you get this paper currency, whether it's US dollar, this, that, at the end of the day, it, it is a credit note that you've gotten, you're taking credit risk on some institution. So I would argue, and this is again highly conceptual, that it is in some ways more, more credible than most fiat money that you've got. 
how do you buy gold to put into the world is there a gold market where uh, how does that happen so there is a wholesale gold market in india india is the second largest physical market for gold in the world oh, it's nearly it's just, some years china is bigger some years we are bigger but we are close to the largest physical gold market we don't produce any gold in india so it's all imported there are only two institutions or two types of institutions that are licensed to import gold in india one is banks so that is the hdfc icici they import from global sources they'll buy these 1 kilogram bars you can go to the bank and you can buy a 1 kilogram bar so we buy some from the banks and the other are refiners and the refiners are people who who import something called dore which is like gold ore but it's it's not just mud but it's somewhat purified all of that but they melt that in it process it and produce gold bars now they have about 50 or 60 refiners in india of which five are what is called india good delivery refiners who have been certified by the bureau of indian standards to have follow certain quality standards certain norms purity is assured is assured and they and they're authorized to deliver bars on the mcx to settle gold futures trade and things like that so we will buy either from a bank or and banks only sell something called london good delivery which is the london market the lbma which is the london bullion market association so they've certified about 70 80 refiners all over the world and they periodically audit them and stuff like that so banks will only sell you lbma so all the bars that we buy short point is you'll either buy lunch good delivery from a bank or we'll buy from bars that are made by one of these five refiners which are india good delivery so we'll buy in short form we will buy a good delivery bar and put it in the vault and then get the money from the trustee what if during that day you haven't sold enough to need to buy a full bar then what do you do like like do you uh, do you buy in advance or do you buy after sale we generally so on the weekends is the only time we buy post because pre weekend so we'll predict if we think we're going to sell say 100 kilos we may buy 30 40 kilos and but through the day i'll buy in advance so now the market's open so we we'll, our interest is to buy in 5 kilo 2 kilo 1 kilo increments i don't want to lock up capital so i think in the next hour i think i'll, I'll sell a kilo or 2 kilos so i'll buy 2 kilos and keep it then in the next hour i'll sell 2 kilos and i'll buy 2 kilos and keep it so that's how we do it so in working days we buy small multiples and weekends or long holidays i will buy half and keep it then we'll buy the rest of it on the and uh, what does a customer get where tell me the customer journey and what a typical customer is like and what is their long term behavior on the platform okay so our our biggest method of just taking gold investment and gold investment is just the base of it now if you go to a website you can earn a yield on it and you can get a loan against it you can get people give you credit cards against it you can exchange for jewelry so a whole bunch of thing you can do i think everything you can do with physical gold our, our aim is to make it more fun and in fact many of the things that you that are possible with when you do it over digital channels that are, are very difficult to do over physical gold so we can talk about all of that later let's just talk about the simple how customers buy our let's say the bulk of our platform 90 95% of our of our platform is working with distribution partners these can range from amazon and flipkart to people like axis bank to people like jar which is a fintech app to people like tanishk tanishk sells digital gold on his website when you buy digital gold on the tanishk cashclean website you're buying it from safe gold now all of these guys consume our apis where we have a buy price sell price delivery all of that so we have a bunch of apis so the entire functionality that you see on a website is available through apis for any partner to consume and partners can then list safe gold on their website so if you go to amazon pay you can buy it you go to phone pay you can buy it so all of that mobiquick and we have about 80 or 100 partners like this so the customer journey is when you register so you will register typically let's take with access bank you have a savings bank account with access bank so when you go there one of the things in the access banks app will let you do like lots of things right you can buy insurance you can buy mutual fund you can transfer money one of the things they'll say is you can buy gold or you can buy digital gold and access bank is not selling it to you there if they are just acting as a payment channel where they're taking money out of the bank account you're buying it from safe gold so you'll have to click on disclaimers that access bank is not taking any risk they are not guaranteeing this you are using them as payment whatever all those disclaimers that they have to give you and then they will show you a buy price on the app or rather they will not put on the we will show it to you on the access app so this is the price which you can buy it you can choose to buy anything 100 rupees 1000 rupees whatever you want so you'll get a balance and then once you have a balance the most basic apps will only give you the choice of selling it the other apps would say you can ask for delivery now if if you want say 0.02 grams right i can't deliver like a fleck of like some gold to you right so the minimum you need to own is like half a gram or 1 gram depending on sometimes we have half grams in stock but otherwise 1 gram is most commonly the thing so once you get to 1 gram you can say deliver a coin now there is a charge because there is a courier there is insurance there is we actually make it because it's stored in 1 kilo bar so it's actually manufactured in so it'll cost 3 4 500 rupees to get that delivered uh, to you 
deliver it to you. The other option you have is we have a tie up with Tanish, Carrot Lane, Kalyan's online arm, bunch of other jewelers. You can go to any of these guys. You can go to Tanish website, go to Tanish store. They have got a safe code balance wherever you may have bought it and you can exchange it for jewelry. Now, what will happen is if you have half a gram or you have even 0.2 grams at the back end, you will get a sort of OTP. If you enter the OTP on the Tanish website, then that your 0.2 grams will transfer to Tanish. And it's the same as going to Tanish website. Becoming the Tanish wallet. Ah, so then Tanish as a company gets ownership of that gold and they will give you credit for it. So it's as good as walking into a shop and you have some old jewelry, right? You say, Aap ye purani jewelry le lo and I will take some new jewelry in return. It's the same process as they follow, just that it's done digitally. So whatever you've accumulated, even if it's a very small amount, you don't need to pay any making delivery, all of that stuff. You just go and you exchange it for actual gold. One quick question. Somebody who's buying through an access bank app and not opting for physical delivery. So they will get like a safe code login where they can log in and see the balance. And is there interoperability? Can I buy from access bank, but later on access that directly through safe code or through Tanesh or whatever? So there is interoperability, I'll say in 90% of the cases. 10%. There is, the, some of the partners have some co-ops so they're doing tech development and all where it's not fully interoperable. But if you buy on Access Bank, for example, banks are regulated and they have very clear guidelines from the RBI about what they cannot do, what they should do, shouldn't do. So that way, it's a good thing. I'd be much happier if the whole industry gets regulated and they're very clear guidelines for what's possible and what's not. If you buy on Access Bank, yes, you can log into the SafeCode website and you could have bought on Amazon, you could have bought on Access, wherever you bought. That you will always see when you log in on the SafeCode website, they'll show you or rather we'll show you your balance when you go to your transaction history, what you did on SafeCode and what is your balance at all the other places. Most of the other places will let you transfer it out and you can move it. So you can't move it from access to Amazon and stuff like that because there they have some AML concerns so to stay away from that, we've just said you can move it into SafeCode because then we do your KYC, whether it's done or not. If you move more than 2,000 rupees worth of gold, we'll take your PAN card, we'll do all that other stuff and take your proof of address if you ask for delivery and all of those things. But yeah, you can move it all into SafeCode so you can consolidate it into a single place. And wherever you bought from, you can also go to Tanishk and you can exchange it. So you could have bought from three different places. You can go to Tanishk and you can exchange it and, and you can convert it into, into jewelry. So the simple basic functionality you can buy. And our aim is, look, if you want to trade gold, this is not good because you're buying physical, you're paying 3% GST. There's also a buy-sell spread because every person who sells it, they take a distribution fee. So they take a distribution fee to make a bit of money. So there's a most actually 70, 80% of that buy-sell spread goes to the distributor. So because of that, there's a buy-sell spread. This is not a trading product. Trade, you go trade MCX futures, you buy ETFs and trade those. There are many ways to trade gold where you do not lose GST. This is an accumulation product. If you buy physical gold, and you need to use it for jewelry or you want a gold coin at the end of it or something, then this is great because you will buy it cheaper than any jeweler in the country. Uh, it's roughly 2.5% higher than the wholesale price of gold. So what you can buy a 1 kilo bar, you go to any other jeweler, it will be anywhere from 4 to 8% higher than the wholesale price. The their gold rate is not meant for trading, it's meant for accumulation. And if you want to use it at some point in the future, if you want physical metal, that's what the product is set up for. Do they have to pay GST when they buy and don't take delivery? GST is still there. Because from a legal point of view, you are buying physical gold. It is kept in the vault. You don't have possession of it, but legally you are the owner of the gold. So you have to pay GST. And what kind of KYC do you need to do to be able to buy gold? So the law says if you buy, if you pay in cash for more than 2 lakhs, then we need to take your PAN card. That is the regulation. However, what we have imposed and most of our partners also have it is up to 2000 rupees, you just verify your mobile number. One is there's no cash gold. So nowhere in our system can you buy gold for cash. So that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all digital payment. To look at it theoretically, we are not supposed to take any KYC. Oh, there's no law on, on KYC in a theoretical level because on cash, everything will either come through credit card, debit card, net banking. So you can always track it. But for more than 2000 rupees, we take your PAN number. And if you go above and then they have different layered stuff if you go more than 50,000 rupees we'll take a proof of address and your bank account if you sell your bank account has to match your pan name and so there are a bunch of other things we do the summary is less than 2,000 rupees with your mobile number you can buy and sell and all but this is cumulative so once you've done 2,000 rupees worth of transactions in any form then you need to start giving KYC yeah. and KYC is just pan it starts at pan then as you do more as you cross certain levels then we'll uh, then we'll ask you pan nadar like id proof residence proof it's essentially proof of id proof of address and then your bank account if you sell so then see what is the fear that people have that you get it delivered and it's someone else getting delivered so then you now again if you're getting one gram delivered we won't bother you but at 20 grams 40 grams if you're getting frequent deliveries then we'll say yeah you have to give me some 
now we already see you have already given your pan so we need a proof of address where it's being delivered which has to match that match that same name you can't give me some other proof of address with the same name it has to be where you're getting it delivered and the name has to be the same and otherwise you then you get delivered then you say what is my option so then you can sell it if you sell it then the money can only go to a bank account again your bank account name has to match your pan name otherwise we're not sending it there those are the two things and then we may do if you're see we have a whole bunch of risk parameters running at the back end so if you trigger suspicious behavior and i'm not going into what it is because you got many we have maybe 40 or 50 indicators that we track then we'll further on say we have to do video kyc we'll call you and check that you are the person you have to hold up your kyc so we've got a whole range of things which we think is as i said technically if you read the letter of the law we are not required to do anything but i don't know anyone who does that so we follow obviously way higher standards than the letter of the law but all of our distribution partners also have somewhat similar levels of kyc because it is not in regulations there may be slight variation but it is broadly so the, you said that gold retailers earn through the buy sell spread can you explain what that means and do you also earn the same way let's say you buy 1 kilo of gold from hdfc bank today you are a jeweler you go you buy 1 kilo of gold he sells it to you at 100 rupees on average the average jeweler then when you go to a jeweler and you buy some chain or something if you buy some gold chain so 10 grams he'll say 10 grams ka price of gold is x and making charges y and x plus y is what you have to pay now in this example the 100 rupees of gold he will mark up to 105 rupees just to make it simpler in in this example if he bought 1 kilo for 100 rupees say he was giving you a 100 gram chain instead of pricing that gold at 10 rupees he would price it at 10 rupees 50 paise or 11 rupees so one is they make a margin on wholesale versus retail and this is every product right rice to coal to oil gold by the wholesale price you're buying 1 kilo and there's a retail price so one that is the margin that even we make so the average jeweler in the country makes a 5% margin we make a 2.5% margin so that is the spread we all make money at the end of the day even we are a business trying to make money right but the point i'm making is look at our price go to any jeweler for buying that 5 gram 10 gram coin whatever compare it go to amazon you can buy a 10 gram coin on amazon we will invariably be if not the cheapest close to the cheapest why is the buying price and selling price different if i want to buy gold there is a different price and if i want to sell gold there is a different price one is we don't want people we don't want to build it as a trading platform so first is if i'm buying at 100 i will sell it to you at 102.5 but when i buy it back from you i buy it back at 99 because one is there are days when the price goes up a lot and that is honestly risk management plus again of that spread we have to pay for money transfer and all the payment fees get with it but when people start selling back to us what happens is that there are days when price of gold goes up suddenly everyone will come and sell so that day we'll have net buyback of 10 kilos it takes time and that is when i have to buy a lot back and then i may when i go to sell in the wholesale market now these banks and refiners don't buy back gold from you i have to find some bullion trader to buy gold from me so that bullion trader will also not buy gold back from me if the price is 100 he'll buy it back at 99 from me because he'll say boss i'm giving you a service of liquidity i need to make a spread so i buy back at the price at which i can sell to a bullion trader so that covers my risk i don't want to lose money on that i'm not trying to make money but i don't want to lose money so that is the buy sell spread and what do you pay for payment gateway is it the standard 1 and 1/2 percent because that would be exorbitant right yeah that's why i said no it's 70 80% of that 2 and 1/2 percent spread that we are making goes into the payment gateway or to a distributor right so if if say amazon sells it amazon also collects money from the customer so it's that same it ranges between 1 to 2% and the good thing is maybe over time as upi becomes more then hopefully that average cost comes around but yeah just now you're still stuck on that 1 and 1/2 percent average cost okay so tell me about the other features like you said that you can do lending or you can earn a yield on it the other stuff that you allow people to do because it's a digital asset yeah so there are two things so for example you've got a partner called galaxy card they keep your gold as collateral and they issue you like a credit card where the value of your credit is linked to the gold that you have and there are a bunch of other partners working on we had actually five six other guys but all of them had followed that prepaid instrument route for funding the card wo band ho gaya abhi wo credit card ka rework karna padega but that was as a mass market product it is a very interesting thing so for example i had got my driver one of these cards so him he buys gold so see that is the that is the ideal target customer so you'd asked about that earlier and they are the ones who are starting to get digitally savvy so he will save a thousand rupees a month in gold because for him he understands bank account he has an fd beyond that he says ki acha sona to main kharidta hu it's for him make the leap into mutual fund equity debt and all is a little bit of a extra thing and then i got him one of these cards where he had maybe over the time over a year or two he'd got some 10 15000 rupees worth of gold so he had a 10000 rupee credit limit concept here main 40 din tak kharcha karta rahunga aur fir 
बाद में पैसा दूंगा दैट्स लाइक अ माइंड ब्लोइंग कांसेप्ट इट्स फ्री क्रेडिट फॉर देम सो दैट आई थिंक इज अ बिग थिंग बिकॉज़ दिस एट द मास मार्केट वेयर दे एक्यूमुलेट गोल्ड इन एनी केस टू यूज इट एज अ स्टैंडिंग लाइन ऑफ क्रेडिट विदाउट हैविंग टू सेल इट विदाउट हैविंग टू लिक्विडेट इट विदाउट हैविंग गो टू अ शॉप एंड पुट इट इन एज कोलैटरल एंड इट कीप्स ऑन एडिंग अप राइट इन द शॉप यू विल फर्स्ट सेव अप मनी टू बाय 10 ग्राम्स देन यू विल गो गिव इट टू अ मुथू देन दे विल गिव यू अ वन टाइम लोन टू गेट द स्टैंडिंग लाइन ऑफ क्रेडिट इज अ वेरी पावरफुल प्रोडक्ट एंड आई थिंक These guys are now reworking it, and they'll come out with the credit card. And I think it's very popular with the mass market. Last ten days of the month is when they need credit. So that is the, I think it's a great product for them, and they're the biggest buyer. Yeah, it, it builds up their credit history, credit scores. It's a great thing, and they'll normally never get a credit card. So that is one. What we and this is a physical card or a virtual card. Abhi thoda with this PPI guideline, all those old issuers have gone out, and they they have to now reworking it. I think six months ke liye thoda limbo mein chala gaya, but they'll all come back because it was a massive. traction this was getting so i think uh, i think that is one so leasing let's get a yield on it so aapke 10 gram ke gold ke 11 gram ho jayenge you have to take risk on that in the bunch of disclosure that's in beta it's still very early but it's like to the best of our knowledge is the first in the world that lets you make some money how does it work so jewelers lease metal so what people if you open the tanishq balance sheet or you open any other big jewel actually any jeweler if you look at it if you look at a jewelry store the average jewelry store will have say 3 crores worth of inventory in gold right he'll have lots of things and all but of the total value of inventory 3 crores will be in gold now if you think of that's his asset right he's got 3 crores gold asset now if you want to manage risk because this gold asset can go up in price it can go down the day he says so if you buy gold today a jeweler on an average it'll take you between 90 to 120 days from the day you've bought gold till it gets manufactured into jewelry till it sits in your shop till it gets sold so if the price of gold is now fallen by 5% on 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 the day you sold it as opposed to the day you bought the gold you've lost 5% right so like you got an asset in one currency which is gold price and your liabilities in rupees so what they want to do is agar mera asset 3 crore ka gold mein i want to borrow 3 crores of gold also and then even the gold price goes up goes down i don't care my asset liability gets matched off it is again thinking of gold as a currency if you look at a big multinational if i have operations in japan and i have 100 million yen in assets i'll finance it with 100 million yen in local sort of yen liabilities rather than finance yen with a dollar liability because then wo us dollar yen exchange rate upar niche chala gaya wo i might make money might lose money so you offset it then you're totally matched that's what multinational does so a jeweler also says mera gold ka itna asset hai let me finance it with itni gold ki liability how does he do it he actually takes like tanishq in the balance sheet will say we lease 8 tons of metal in a year which means he has borrowed 8 tons of metal and he'll pay you say 10% interest now the tanishq actually pays much less than that but if he's paying you whatever 10% interest so on one ton he'll give you back 1.1 tons of gold at the end of the year it is like gold mein borrow kiya gold mein interest diya gold mein liability khatam ho gayi whatever is his balance sheet size he'll offset it so jewelers borrow gold so the large banks lend it to the top 500 jewelers they have 3 lakh jewelers in the country of which the top 500 or 1000 get these metal loans from banks because they borrow from offshore and they give it the rest of the jewelers don't get anything so they borrow in the informal market and so we started saying we will as a customer one is you have to accept the risk that is key because when you're giving it to the jeweler boss if he doesn't pay back then you're stuck so if you're willing to do that but it's taking an idle asset and it's actually reducing imports today they would if you're an, if you're tanish you would i say say bank will import that gold and lend it to tanish better still you have local gold so much thousands of tons owned by consumers let them lend it locally na and so local jeweler gets it and what we do is we take a bank guarantee from the jeweler so we tell the jeweler that you want to borrow 1 kilo we list it if we get customers equivalent to 1 kilo lending it to you then we will collect it all and give you 1 kilo and if you don't give it back we'll enforce this bank guarantee which you've taken for the value of 110% of that 1 kilo we'll buy gold and give it back to the customers there is risk because when you go to enforce a bank guarantee it takes 3 4 months no bank pays you quickly when you go to buy it price of gold may have gone up and all of that but it is still protected to a large extent you won't lose all your money or highly unlikely you lose all your money that is the product that we started with. and there would be a lock in period for this right because the loan would be three months or six months are typically lock in period so it think about putting a fixed deposit and then you get it out so that's what we've started I wanted to understand your go to market how did you acquire the first 100 customers and then how did you acquire the first 1000 and then the first 10000 how did that go to market journey evolve the customer acquisition strategy so that was quite simple in the sense that we started off as a distributor driven platform so our first partner was phone pay and we launched with phone pay in effectively january of 2018 was the first full month of operation with phone pay and i think for the first 9 months phone pay was on a rocket ship for a while so we were able to get first few million customers just straight by being on by being present on the phone pay app 
by being by powering the gold icon on the phone pay app we were able to get the first 2 3 million customers with no spend or no work and phone pay was spending more on cashbacks and this and that all of that so that was almost too easy to get the initial scale but then of course if you're completely dependent on one person who's a much larger entity then of course the terms of trade are skewed uh, in their favor but i think that actually opened the doors for us in the sense that once you're on phone pay and once you get some initial scale it's much easier to get other partners and then we started then a lot of people also come and start talking to you and we were able to go to other banks and other tech apps and then from phone pay then you go to flipkart then you go to amazon then it builds up from there so you don't really see like a direct to customer play in future also you want to continue with the route through partners or yes i think see today now maybe 5 to 10% of our business comes direct to customer how does that happen do you spend on ads no it's just come organically people we've had zero marketing expense so far we've hired a pr company and we've hired some other some people to post on facebook and instagram and all for us but we don't spend on marketing in the sense we don't make ads and branding efforts but not like performance marketing ha huh, it's it's more communication type efforts that we do where we hire it's like you pay some retainers and all but you don't spend on google and facebook and stuff like that and there there's a reason for that see the margins in gold are so low so the two reasons actually that the margins in gold are so low that it doesn't justify even if a customer comes back and buys gold twice a year thrice a year i given the average ticket size with us on our website it's about 4000 rupees on some of these other fintech apps and all it will be lower at 7 800 bucks banks it will be higher 6 7000 rupees but even on that we'll make some 5 rupees 10 rupees 20 rupees kind of margin each time a customer buys from us after you've paid all the payment gateway costs and all of that stuff right so the customer acquisition cost anywhere you look at it will be at least 200 300 400 you're not going to get 20 rupees 30 rupees customer acquisition cost plus it's a high trust factor i think more importantly when someone buys from you they need to believe that you actually have the gold stored with them now we've got all this trusty custodian all that fancy thing but the reality is that most customers are not going to bother reading all that stuff and going through it and all right between the fact that the economics don't really make sense so whatever comes organically because people hear about us see our logo that's fine that's great because all money also all margin is good margin if you've not spent more than that on acquiring it also i and the final point is that we think of it like if you look at a mutual fund right we are in some senses like a product you're an investment product also going back to my original plan the original plan is it's like you should be with 50 million 100 million consumers you are a currency which you want 100 million people to own should be a unique address that they have and you should be able to focus on the interoperability i am not trying to build a gold investment business in itself so then if you are like a currency which is now used by 100 apps and 100 big apps then you can start doing stuff with that right they can start like going to tanishk is the first theoretical use of currency that you got you bought some gold on amazon now what do you do with this if you want to make it a currency you can use it for 100 things today you can use it for one thing which is go to tanishk and buy jewelry with it trying to do that i'm trying to build this i have a currency which hopefully today 20 million people own it hopefully 100 million will own it some point then you give them other things to do with that currency always in partnership with other platforms how many customers do you have now So you want vanity metrics so okay okay <laughs> depending on who <laughs> i want to answer let me let me give you the entire stack we have about 30 million customers where we've got kyc and we've got the details and all of that of the 30 million about 23 million have bought gold from us so 23 million have given us money at some point bought some gold and gone away and about 9 million today still have a positive gold balance with us why is this such a high churn 50% have there are again three buckets of customers okay roughly one third one third one third but and it's simplifying a bit because it varies a lot on a channel so part of the churn is without naming them let's say some fintech app gives a cashback you buy digital gold you buy something you get 5 rupees cashback in 3 weeks you'll get 2 million guys who'll buy it take that 5 rupees thing and go away get technically customer ban gaya but wo aake gaya so i am happy i made some money off the guy someone gave cashback showed engagement whatever so that is that that is part of it okay so that explains some part of it the other part is you get talking about a customer base about 1/3 come they aren't sure what it is so they'll buy 5 10 rupees 50 rupees they'll buy it they'll keep it for a week a month or whatever sell it and go away saying ha theek hai ho gaya some of them come back maybe a third of them will come back two thirds of them won't come back but they just try it out so they don't know what it is they try it out see what it is and they don't come back again one not one third about 20% 15 20% buy it once and then become regular users regular users we define as at least once a quarter they come and do a transaction with us whether they buy redeem gift deliver whatever once a quarter so say depending on the distribution channel somewhere between 15 and 20% become rec- recurring regular users and the balance which is say 40 40% or so are guys who will maybe transact once a year or more 
So you said your ideal audience is like your driver, someone who is not in the formal investment economy, not using mutual funds. So what's your strategy to reach that audience? Uh, you you want to find partners who are in apps. Largely, it is find partners who cater to them. So someone mm-hmm. like an Amazon Pay or a Phone Pay will reach the upper end to the absolute lower end. There, the okay. challenge or the focus more is figure out the lower end or the mass market people and then how do you reach mm. out to them and engage them and get them on, mm. on board. The other mm. thing is you work with people like microfinance companies, you work with, okay. uh, they have NBFCs who focus on the mass market. So other mm. financial mm. services type of people who are focused on this segment and you go to them. We found the most success through the payment bank. So we work with Fino Payments Bank, Airtel Payments okay. Bank. Uh, and there are a couple of others in the pipeline. What is your path to profitability? Are you currently profitable or what do you see as? Yes, yeah, we've been profitable for a while. What is your top line? So we are like cash flow positive. We add cash flow to our bank account every month. And what's your top line? What are you expecting to close this year at or what did you do last year at? Yeah, yeah so I can give you the numbers. They're, but they're just mined in gold. We make like tiny margins. So because we sell the gold, the top line sounds very artificially inflated. Not artificially, it's actual soil, but it's not represented as the scale. So we did about 2500 crores for, for the year ended march 22 we did 400 crores the year before that and our run rate should we should do about 6 to 7000 crores this year you would be earning about 1% or so in that we make basis points of this yeah we make not even after you have to take out all the kharcha but i think the key is if you do not spend on marketing there is then it's a fixed cost business right you have people you have aws so the only thing that really goes up so i have to pay all my distribution partners that's all a direct variable cost whether i sell 100 whatever x percent goes delta payment gateway did you need to raise funds for this or did you self-funded no it was little bit self-funded in the beginning but we've got three investors who have a minority stake which is the world gold council which was the seed investor and then there are two vcs uh, pravega and bnex so that would have been a strategic investment. The World Gold Council is a very strategic investment. It's not so much financial. Then we raised some VC money in 2019, which is the year after we started, which is from Provega and Bnext. And after that, we've never raised. Then it's small. Our total fundraise to date is 16 crores. And we have maybe 12 crores in the bank today. So we spent all of 4 crores of our total fundraise. There is no need for you to raise also now because you're, the path you're Choosing is not a high bird path. No need. We might raise at some future thing for the international business. So of our 16 crores that we've raised, we've put 4 crores in the international business. And there are new markets. I think in India, you can scale a little bit faster. So I don't think we'll ever be going down the path of raising 100 crore, $100 million, $50 million, all of that. We might raise more money if we can accelerate it, launch a range of new products, stuff like that. What is your global plan? Like, Do you have a market in mind that this is going to be the first few markets or... And will the product be the same? So Thailand will live in. We're already live in Thailand. So Thailand is the per capita highest consumption of investment gold. In I think per capita is the highest in the world. In Asia, it is one of the highest per capita. To, to give you a sense of it, they have a 60 million population. And we have whatever, 1.6, 1.5 billion, whatever our population is. We as a country consume, forget jewelry, because jewelry is not in our dark, direct target segment. We consume about 150 tons of bars and coins every year which is worth roughly $10-$12 billion. Thailand, with a 60 million population, does 100 tons of bars and coins. So it's a very high sort of investment demand for gold market. And the jewelry is, in fact, much smaller. So I think the first market is just the first few markets are just Asia because you, if you start with telling people, hey, I have a digital currency, come buy it, you can do things with it, the regulators will freak out, the customers will say, I don't know who this guy is, he's a whack job, all of that. So I think the, I think the, uh, the aim is to go and offer it as an investment product where people have a natural affinity for buying gold as a more efficient way to accumulate gold. Once you've got enough people who've got it, subject to the regulatory sort of approvals you can get, then give them things that they can start doing with it. So I think Thailand, UAE is the next uh, that we have in line where we're working, where we've applied for licenses. It's still pending. And Singapore is the other place where we've applied. That is the strategy. And and probably you would want uh, inter-country interoperability also, like someone. Correct. Correct. From Thailand is able to redeem it in India and vice versa. Like That's why Singapore and UAE and all are, are great countries because they have no taxes on gold. There's completely free interoperability. So then you can start doing the funky stuff in terms of send it instantly for remittances and things like that. I love the long-term game that you're playing. The vision is amazing. Like Essentially, you are doing like a safer version of Bitcoin. Huh, safer compliance. So you go through the headache of each country. Regulators have different questions and this and that. Go through that headache. So it'll take time. But hopefully at someday when you turn the switch on or it starts becoming valuable, 
everyone. I'm, Are there any competitors in your space? I'm assuming it it might be like. Unfortunately, see, there's no direct competitor, but there are uh, there are in some ways direct. So you've got in India there are two gold refiners, people who import gold refine it, who have also started doing this. So I would say maybe. 60-70% of the market share in India is ours for this digital gold. But there's one other company called MMTC Pamp, which is a gold refiner. They are the ones on Paytm and on Google. So if you buy digital gold on Paytm or on Google Pay, it is powered by MMTC Pamp. So they are our only real significant competitor. You can't go, you can't get a loan against it. You can't redeem it at a jeweler's shop. You can't do anything with it. You can buy the gold and they'll send you a coin. And because that is their business model that they make gold and they sell gold, this is one more channel to sell gold. Ah, got it. That's like their e-commerce arm in a way. That's the e-commerce arm. Not to say that they won't try and do it. They're a big company. They have a lot of resources, all of that stuff. And then they have a bunch of their about, I'd say at, at any given point, there are at least eight or 10 other bullion traders who launch their apps and try and go and do this and all. And every year to two years, most of them shut down, then some new ones come up. And also that's maybe four or 5% of the market that is there. In places like the UAE and Thailand, there are no direct competitors that we know of. But like Tether, you were talking about that stable coin. Tether has a global gold, gold back token. Paxos is another one that has a gold back token. Now, those only trade on crypto exchanges. They've not gone and integrated with a bank or an Amazon or someone like that because because those are now, that's in the realm of crypto. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in.